With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Beyond the Grid. I hope you're all keeping safe in these very difficult times. My name's Tom Clarkson, and coming up, we have another hour of lockdown escapism for you. This time with a man who has one of the most famous surnames in racing. In fact, his father, three-time world champion Sir Jack, would have been 94 last week. So we thought it was an opportune moment to get David Brabham on the show. David was only five years old when Jack retired from Formula One at the end of 1970. The family then returned to Wagga Wagga in Australia and David spent his early years working on the family farm with his father. Until, that is, the racing bug could be contained no longer. Though he didn't take up the sport seriously until 17, David raced and beat many future world champions on his way to Formula One, including Damon Hill and Mika Hakkinen. And fittingly, he made his Grand Prix debut for Brabham in 1991. It proved a mixed blessing, and it wasn't until 1994 that he returned to the F1 grid, this time with Minnow's Simtech. Again, the going was tough, not least when tragedy struck at Imola and his teammate Roland Ratzenberger was killed. Anyone who thought being born a Brabham was an easy ticket to F1 fame and fortune hasn't heard David's story. He's needed all of the guile and determination of his famous father to get to the sport's top echelon, and he's needed it since retiring from Formula One as well, as he's fought to regain control of the Brabham name. There have been many famous families in Formula One, but the Brabhams were different, as you're about to hear. I hope you enjoy our conversation. David, great to have you on the show. Can we start by going back to the beginning, to where the Brabham journey began in motor racing with your father, Jack, three-time world champion? How do you remember your dad? Uh, hi, Tom. Um, how do I remember? What do you want me to answer? Do you want me to answer about his career or you want to be talking about my father? Well, you know, I say to you, two quite different Well, I think people. we'll cover both. I mean, what about him as a dad? Yeah, I mean, it... He was a dad. When I grew up as a kid, he was, he just retired when I was five. So I never really saw him racing his Grand Prix era. Um, I think that's someone, I think it was my mum told me I was at uh, the South African Grand Prix. Actually, he won that in 1970 and I was playing in the pool with Damon Hill and, and his sisters. So, you know, I kind of went to a Grand Prix, but I didn't. And then we moved to Australia. Um, in Sydney and so growing up there with a quite a famous father was quite a daunting kind of experience in a way because everybody was would look at him everyone would come up for an autograph he was always on tv and although I didn't see him race you know he was still very famous after that so that was my sort of memories of of Jack not just him as a father but the kind of impact that he had in Australia at that time and he was traveling a lot. So I didn't see him like all the time, like like a normal kind of family. He was still, he had businesses uh, in the UK as well as in, in Australia. And he was, you know, I guess dad, you know what I mean? He, he, he had his good points. He had his bad points like we all do. We used to argue a lot. But, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, wanting his children to go racing, he just didn't want that at all. So we had to kind of make our own journey uh, in some way. Well, that's quite interesting. Why do you think he didn't want you to get into get into racing or get into race driving? Uh, well, that's a good question. I don't. I'm not really sure. He just. I think more from a driver point of view because uh, you know he went through a lot of deaths in that period when he was driving. A lot of people that he knew quite close. And I think when my brother Jeff said, "Hey, I want to go racing," it was only four years after he retired, uh, and he he wasn't very supportive of it to begin with. And of course, Jeffrey was like, like all of us, we were pretty determined to say, well, okay, fine, but we'll, we'll do it somehow. And Jeff started racing. And then when dad started to see that he was serious, then he started to get behind him. And then, you know, Jeff's career went on to the UK and then went on to America and he had a very successful career. What's the age gap between you and Jeff? 
Oh, it's about 13 years. Right. So at this point, what were you thinking? What was your attitude to racing, even when Jeff was going racing? Um, I remember going to a couple of his races, but I was more interested in sitting in a cardboard box, going down a hill at speed, having my own thrill other than, say, watching him on, on track. So, you know, he would win. I'd see him afterwards and it was like, oh, how'd you get on? You know, <laughs> so yeah. it was a bit like that. So I had no real interest or desire in that sense as, as in racing. But in terms of sport, football, competition, that's something that was in me from the work go. And so what age were you when you started to really appreciate what dad had achieved? Not till I was quite a bit older, to be fair. I would say even after I left school. So I went to an agricultural boarding school to learn about agriculture because we had a four and a half thousand acre farm outside of Wagga Wagga in New South Wales. And I was being groomed to be a farmer. So my two older brothers were racing, but someone needed to be on the farm to, to run that. So, you know, I ended up on a, on a agricultural boarding school and then left at 16 to work on the farm and went to a, a wool class in college after that as well. So, so far removed sheep. from so racing. Yeah, yeah, sheep, sheep, well, sheep, cattle. We grew wheat, barley, oats, you know, sunflower, all that sort of thing. And we had irrigation, so we were on the Murrumbidgee River there. And is that still in the family, the farm? No, we sold it in 91. Right. Okay. So you're being groomed to be a farmer. And at what point did you go, no, this isn't what I want to do. I want to go racing. Well, when I was on the farm, driving vehicles, whether they were the, 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 the ute, the Daihatsu, we had the, um, the tractors, the motorbikes. It was always flat out, always sideways. So the driving fast, pushing yourself, balancing the car on the edge, I absolutely loved and did for years. Didn't even think about racing. It was just fun as far as I was concerned. What about rallying? Yeah, I know. It's like, <laughs> it sounds, sounds like, sounds like it, it does, doesn't rally, it? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I actually did, my very first event was a rally. So it was the Wagga Wagga Car Club Rally. Didn't have a clue what I was doing. And my next door neighbour came with me and he was a navigator. I stole my brother's car because he was in the UK, so he didn't know about it. And I was in this little Mazda 66 and, and off I went and did this, this rally. So that was my very first event, which is kind of, runs true with my background being on the farm and being on the dirt. But it wasn't until I was uh, six, just 17 and I went to America to watch my brother Jeff race. So he was, he was first year in IndyCars in 82. And uh, that was really the first time I kind of really saw racing proper. From the inside? Yeah. So you're in the pit lane? In yeah, pit yeah. lane, un, you know, kind of old enough to kind of understand it a bit more and having more of an interest where before that I had no, in, no real interest. So... Um, we ended up going to a uh, workshop and it was um, uh, Al Hunter Jr. in America who was doing Can-Am. And so Jeffrey had won the championship the year before. He was doing IndyCars, but he was asked to do a few races for Rick Gallus to help Al Hunter Jr. win the championship. So we went to their workshop. So it was the very first racing workshop I'd ever been to. And he was doing a seat fitting and I ended up going for a wander around and I saw a mechanic working on a go-kart. And I walked up to it and I'm looking at this go-kart and started to have a chat to this, this guy. And I said, do people race go-karts? He said, are you adopted? <laughs> it's I mean, quite a mad question it for is. Brabham it, to Exactly, because yeah. he's looking at yeah. my brother doing a seat fitting, Brabham family, racing history, heritage, iconic racing dad. And I didn't know people race go-karts at 17. That's how far removed it. I think my dad did a really good job to keep me away from it because... Um, was he surprised then when you actually said, Dad, I want to have a go at this? Yeah, well, I went back and having spent the time in the pits, you know, in meetings with Jeff, listening to it, I really started to think about what was going on. And I was really interested about the car, how it worked. Um, you know, why is that like that? I kept asking lots of sort of questions. And then I went back to Australia and thought, you know what, I want to have a go on a go-kart. So I said it to Dad, and Dad's jaw just dropped because that was the very first time in 17 years I ever said I wanted to get into some sort of car to go on a racetrack. He, um, he just basically said, no. Nah. So I said, well, okay, fine. So my next-door neighbour, who I did the rally with, I went to school with as well, and I said, hey, let's go and have a look at a go-kart race meeting. So we went to the Griffith go-kart track and watched what was then the New South Wales country titles. So it was a fairly big meeting. 
and we were hooked straight away. So together, because we were working on the farm, we were earning a bit of money, we bought a second-hand go-kart together, put it in the ute to head off to do our very first test at Griffith. And Dad, who wasn't there a lot, was actually there that time. And just as I started the car up, he tapped on the window and said, I better come with you. Oh, wow. Yeah, so That's quite he, a big he, moment jumped, in he, your, he jumped in the ute in your life, yeah. and off, off we went to Griffith. And, um, and we spent, you know, we were, we were the only ones there. So we we're just going round and round and round. And dad would pick up a, like a little, he picked up a piece of go-kart number plate, like a yellow number plate that had a little edge to it. So he put it down and would show us the lines. But I kind of got that pretty quickly based off my experience of on the farm in the dirt. And he suddenly realized that actually I could drive, which was a total shock to him. Um, and then it, there was a case of me just going through different go-kart race meetings, um, showing him in a sense that, hey, I do want it, you know, because I did. You know, it wasn't because he did it or, or my brothers did it. It's something that I wanted to do. I wanted to test myself. So that's how it kind of started. And how was your relationship with dad throughout all that? Because if we, if, even before you started racing, did you work closely together on the farm in terms of not discussing racing, but discussing farming and and. Were you quite close, would you say? Yeah, I think we were close. I think we probably could have been closer, but he wasn't there a lot. So it was a bit, that was a bit difficult. And when he was there, he spent, he, he loved his engineering. You know, he loved building things like his race cars that he did when he won world championships. So going down there, he would invent stuff for the farm. So that was always fascinating walking what into kind the of workshop. Stuff? Oh, it'd be anything. The fastest you know. tractors in Australia. No, or not necessarily <laughs> that. It was just practical stuff that just made jobs easier. And, you know, it'd be, be building sort of stuff for, for when you put the grain into the big silos, you know, made a different box with a different agar. And, you know, it was, it was, yeah, it was all good. But I would then go off with the farm hand and then we would go off and do the work on the farm. And then, of course, dad was still in the workshop making stuff. That was that. That was him. I think that defined him as a race car constructor and everything. And yeah. when you think that he won a world championship in his own car, and you've seen him working on the farm like that, it is an extraordinary thing, isn't it? It is. And I, did I, you then start to appreciate it when you saw him on the farm making all these shortcuts, trying to do things faster, better, quicker? You sort of got your little insight into. I think it worked in reverse a little bit. As I got older and raced and I started to understand much more about what he achieved and how he did it and then look back at what he was doing on the farm, it all started to make sense. When I was younger and saw him doing it, you know, you walk in, you see dad doing it. And I, did, I wasn't an engineer, so I wasn't in there helping him make stuff. But it was interesting just being in that environment, watching him tinker away, thinking, drawing stuff, measuring stuff. You know, he had a bit, lovely big lathe, so he was, you know, the the um, all the metal and everything and so yeah it was it was it was interesting growing up in that environment so you're now wanting to be a racing driver dad has shown you the lines did he because there's this wonderful story i want to talk to you about in a minute you know did he do anything else to show you how to be a racing driver or once he realized you could drive did he leave it to you he was very much there's the steering wheel crack on he wasn't that person who would sit down look at every line, look at everything that you were doing, talk to you or anything. He, he was very much about, if you've got it, go and figure it out. That was his approach. He was always there for advice. And there were times when he would watch something with me on track and I'd come in and he would go, well, did you try that? And I didn't. And he was absolutely right every time. So he had a really good eye for what the car or the cart was doing at the time. Um, in terms of what setup we might need, what sort of changes I could have done when I was driving. And that's where I learned a lot from him. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. 
It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. So this story, Adelaide 1987, Formula 2, Australian Formula 2 is supporting the Adelaide Formula 1 Grand Prix. You have a mechanical problem, I think, don't you, in qualifying? And you're last mm-hmm. on the grid, 38th or something like that. And then, so the story goes, you have a humdinger of a row with your old man before the start. Are you able to tell us what it was about and what effect it had on you? Yeah, I mean, I look back on that really fondly. Um, not the necessary that we had a massive Barney, but it was all part of the process that I got to in terms of understanding myself more. Um, understanding, you know, the father-son relationship more. I mean, I learned so much. But, yeah, leading up to that point, three months before I told my parents that my girlfriend was pregnant. And for Dad, that was like an absolute no-no. You know, he was, he was very much, if you're going to be a racing driver, it's a selfish sport, you kind of got to be on your own. And, I, and you know, I kind of get that, for sure. But, you know, I had a girlfriend. We, we, we were going to have a baby. And Dad did not speak to me for three months. He was absolutely fuming because leading up to that, so he said later, you know, when we had a bit of a chat about it, he thought I had everything to get to Formula One. So for him, he could see that I was the one that was going to make Formula One. And for him to see that I was going to have a baby, girlfriend, that was to him, that was, oh, no, that's just not going to work. So during the the race weekend, as you say, qualifying time you know the, we had a problem with the car didn't do a lap so i'm starting last and before the race i'm, I'm sort of having a chat with him and mum and i ended up saying hey look you know there's a formula one pass on your on your chest that bernie we obviously used to give him and i said oh you better get me one of those soon because i'm going to be in formula one and he just said the days of you ever getting to formula one are finished and he was like absolutely deadpan no joking straight at me i you can imagine what I said to him. I wasn't very pleasant and I walked off and I was absolutely steaming, steaming with rage. Just wanting to prove him wrong or? I was just, I was just angry at the whole situation and obviously didn't do well in qualifying. So that was probably added to it. But, you know, the whole father-son thing, that's a quite powerful emotion. And, and for him to say that really, it really tipped me to a completely different level in terms of anger frustration but so much intent by the time i got into that car being last i was going to win that race in 15 laps no one was going to be able to get in my way and i had a different attitude you know it just everything was increased and i took off and i was 17th by lap one i was literally dive bombing everyone just going in and out in and out taking every advantage i could find not one mistake, not one contact, but the way how quickly I went through that field, I was driving at a completely different level that I'd ever driven before. And so with a lap to go, I get in the lead and I, won, I win the race. And I didn't know the time, but, you know, he was watching on the pit lane with a mate of mine. And my mate said, um, you know, dad was sort of timing the leaders, looking at the gap, just getting less and less. So then he, he wanders in the pit garage, grabs Ken Tyrrell and, and Jackie Stewart, brings them in, you know, up to the pit wall and said, hey, watch this. <laughs> so, you know, it was probably 10 laps to go at that point and I'm absolutely flying. You know, I'm catching them so quickly. Um, and then, of course, I won the race. Uh, and I think that was a turning point for me because I realised then actually the, the kind of mood you're in really alters how you drive. And that, and that carried on all the way through my career. So I was very aware of the kind of mood I had to be in to, to activate that extra level. So the sports... So it was a gift. It was a gift for me. That, the row with that? Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, the sports psychologists listening to this will be fascinated to know how you were able to channel that anger into a sort of positive force. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because I could have easily made a mistake because I would have been... Well, you could the, easily have just charged into the back of the guys at turn one and... It, yeah, I think, been- you know, I think every, every emotion has a different frequency in a sense in your body and every, every thought changes the way you perceive things. So for me, having the anger to begin with, and I turn that into just pure intent in um, determination, I was never going to give up. It just took my mind to a completely different level, which meant that when I'm flying through the corners and going past everybody, 
I see the world differently to if I'd just got up, got into the car as normal as I had done previously and tried to win the race, I probably wouldn't have won the race. But I needed something like that, that moment with my father to be able to go, to switch into a level that I just never knew existed. What did dad say to you after the race? Well, he was obviously really pleased. <laughs> um, Ken Tyrrell was there and he's telling the whole of Australia, you've got to get behind this kid. You've got to get him over to England. And, you know, he's a Formula One future star and all this kind of stuff. You know, so I went from being told that I'm never going to make Formula One. So within, you know, a 40 minute race, I'm I'm going to be a Formula One star. <laughs> so it was all kind of a bit weird. But, you know, standing on the podium at the Australian Grand Prix support race, having just done that, it, it helped launch my career. There's no doubt about it. And what about the Brabham name? Did, was that a help or a hindrance? I think it's been a bit of both. Yeah. I mean, there's an expectation, um, particularly when I first started. And it takes a while for you to establish yourself as, as or for me, as David Brabham, not, oh, that's Jack's son, David. That, that took a while. And it, and it takes a bit of time and maturity to learn how to deal with both sides of the positives and the negatives. And did Australia get behind you? Was there any money coming out of Australia to support you, particularly in the early years? No, there wasn't. Um, the only way I got to England really was um, Camel Cigarettes were doing a sort of sponsoring lots of drivers and they were sons of famous racing drivers, basically. So um, myself, Justin Bell were teammates in Derrick Bell Racing with a Camel sponsor. You had Paul Stewart, you had Damon Hill. So they were sponsoring drivers, giving them a free drive, basically. So that was my ticket to the UK to start racing over there because I didn't know how long it was going to last and it wasn't a particularly good start to the season. I was used to driving Formula Atlantic cars and Formula 2 cars and then going to Vauxhall Lotus was like two steps down to what I was used to. The team was new. It, uh, yeah, it, was, it wasn't a great situation and my motivation dived so I was driving pants you know it just wasn't wasn't any good um and then I, I you know dad was actually instrumental in in pulling me out of there with the help of the team and camel to put me into um Jack Brabham Racing's Formula 3 Class B car and then it all changed then all of a sudden I was back feeling at home uh, motivation came back um and I started winning so that that was uh, if I hadn't have done that I probably would have gone home did England feel like a foreign country to you? Because, of course, you were born in London and Wimbledon. <laughs> uh, I assume there were lots of family, friends in London for you to stay with. and, and Or did you get no, homesick? Really. Did you get homesick? Because, I mean, people like Mark Webber talk about how hard it was in the early years for him. Did you find it as difficult? No, I don't think I did. I just, I just went over there with an attitude of, right, this is my next step. Don't know how long it's going to be. I'll put everything into it. Um, yeah, I missed the farm because obviously I spent quite a lot of time on the farm and I love the outback. Um, and obviously my family were there, but you know, dad would travel as well. He'd come over to the UK and watch the racing. So I always had some family around me. Um, so it wasn't, wasn't that bad. I don't, I don't ever remember being really homesick and wanting to go back because I'm homesick. I never, I was there racing. I was just happy to be there racing. And how easy to replicate that mood you were in, in that F2 race at Adelaide in 87 was that the sort of the blueprint for you going forward before every race? You were trying to get yourself into that same mindset? Yeah, I think there's a great saying, you know, if you want to know your future, look in the mirror, look at yourself, you know, who are you? What are you thinking? How much do you want it? You know, what mood are you in? And like I said, in 1987, that was a, a turning point for me because I, I got into a completely different mood in the car than I had done before. So I was seeing the world very differently. I was behaving and thinking differently or what I could even believe in what I could achieve. So when I got into Formula 3 and all of a sudden felt empowered again, um, you know, I, I won five out of the seven Formula 3 Class B races and then I won the Formula 3 Championship the next year and the World Cup in Macau. So, you know, I had a really good run and I think for me to have that run goes back to 87 as well as all the other experiences that I had. But it, it really helped me to think more about the way I think when I go into a race car. So 89, you've got the world at your feet. You've just won, as you say, the British Formula 3 Championship. I mean, there were some serious drivers in that. There was Mika Hakkinen at the time. Mm -hmm. and you had great battles with McNish. And, oh, when I think about Macau. And Macau, know, yeah. Macau was like... Schumacher. Schumacher, um, Hakkinen, Irvine, Morbidelli, Zanardi, McNish. 
Um, I mean, you've had some great wins in your career, including Lamore, of course. Is Macau right up yeah, there? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, at the time, you know, that you, you're racing against a bunch of kids like you are and, and you end up winning one of the biggest races in F3. And, of course, at that time, you gave you a super license as well. So that was like tick. And although I'd won the British Formula 3 Championship, that year there was a lot of controversy and I had points taken away from me and uh, West Surrey Racing and my team Bowman Racing, they they threw protests at each other and Alan's team, Alan McNish, who I was really racing for the championship with, um, ended up appealing. So his points came back because he, he had points taken away. Mine hadn't. So he was leading all of a sudden where I should have been leading and I was then I was put to sixth. So by the time I got through the end of the season, I only – I could have, if I won the last race, I could have won with a 24 point deficit. So I had a really strong half of the season. And again, I learned a lot, again, the, the mental side mm. of the game. I was able to bring some of the, what I'd learned before into that last half of the season to take myself to another level. I had more poles, more wins, and I nearly won the championship, like I said, with a 24 point deficit. But so what was on the cards at the end of 89? You were the most talked about young driver outside of Formula One. What was being discussed at the end of 89? I, um, I did a test with Eddie Jordan in Formula 3000 because that was the next natural step. And I did the test and the test didn't go that well. <laughs> Where was it? It was at Silverstone. It was half wet, half dry. It was on slicks and the thing just <laughs> rotated out of the corner, uh, out of the last corner and ended up going over a curb. And then, you know, it didn't hit anything other than the curb and then drove round into the pits and there was a big hole in the in the tub, so I couldn't test. Um, their other car that was running was being run by Paul Tracy. So he was there testing at the same time. And then uh, Middlebridge, who were re- running then, contacted me to say, look, come and do a test. So I did a test with them. That went a lot better. Um, and ended up signing for Middlebridge with Damon Hill as my teammate to do the Formula 3000 season. Um, in 1990? In 1990, yeah. And what contact... Had there been any contact from any Formula One teams at that point? No, no, because back then the average age was quite high in terms of Formula One. So they always wanted drivers with experience. In today's world, it's a bit different. But back then, no, there was no, there was no real contact from, from Formula One. So how did the Formula One opportunity in 1990 come up then? Well, you know, I'd done some tests with Middlebridge and that, that went quite well. And we were getting ready to... Um, test i think it was te- we had the new cars the new lolas and we were about to test the next day and i was at the factory and all getting excited and then i was pulled into the office and they said just to let you know we're, we're cancelling the actually no let me go back all this stuff's coming back now <laughs> cool. as i was in formula 3000 you know leading up to that test formula one had started middlebridge had bought brabham formula one team so they were going off to Phoenix to do the race. They arrived at Phoenix and the week of Phoenix, they rang me and said, how would you like to drive the Brabham Formula One car? At the season at, opening. At the season opener. And I said, no, thanks. Big call, big call <gasps> from you. Well, it, just, it was just logic um, because I didn't feel I was ready. I was probably not fit enough. I didn't feel that I would do it justice. And I, and I, and I turned it down. And um, I think... At the time, from what I hear, they, th- they thought that was impressive, that I thought, no, you know what, I'm not quite ready. When I am, then we'll talk. Um, so, but were you nervous that you were closing the door and it might never open again? No, never thought of that. No? You th- no, no. Because I was pretty confident in Formula 3000 I could, I could win. And with the team and the, and the car that we had, the engines, uh, the, the, the Tickford engines, that, that was a really strong package. And I, so I felt very confident, felt confident I could, I could deal with Damon. So I'd beaten him in F3. So I didn't think that going into Formula 3000 would cool be a cool team. David, that is a cool team. Yeah, no, I mean, I was really looking forward to it. Um, and then when they said, look, we're cancelling the team, but we'd like you to be the Formula 1 driver. So I, had an, I didn't have an option then, in a sense. It was either look for another job or be a Formula 1 driver. So I took up the offer to be a Formula 1 driver, um, which was obviously totally unexpected at that time and my very first race was uh, the the third round at Imola yeah what were your expectations because the car had been quite good in 89 the previous year Brundle had run 
I think third at Monaco mm. for a lot of the race. And yeah. What are your expectations? My expectations were based off the BT58, which was, was the car in 89. That was the very first car I tested at Silverstone. Beautiful car. One of the nicest cars I think I've ever driven. It was just so balanced. You just could absolutely like wring its neck. I tried to wring its neck. I was still had to learn how to wring its neck coming from really F3 to F1. Um, but it was a super impressive car. Then when we got the BT59, it was a disaster. It was slower. The rear end wasn't finished. The gearbox wasn't finished till halfway through that season. So I had to have the old gearbox with the new front end. And it was a real mismatch. And the team ran out of money very quickly. So it didn't reach expectations from a team point of view. So it was very, very challenging, put it that way. So having had this sort of nice rise to Formula One, I hit Formula One with Brabham and it, yeah, it was a bit of bit of a challenge, a bit of a disaster in that sense. What about the emotional side being, you know, another next generation Brabham in Formula One? Your first race that you qualified for was Monaco, where mm. the old man had won in, yeah, was it, 1959? Yeah. And um, did you get caught up in the emotion of it all or just did you not have time? Did you not allow yourself? No, I think I did, for sure. I mean, obviously when the announcement was was done and dad was there and we're at the Brabham factory and we had the BT19 that he won the championship in 66. The only car that, you know, driver with his, with the, you know, the name on the car that won the championship. And it was very kind of emotional because it was like, Jesus, I'm in F1. You know what it was? It, well, that wasn't planned to be. I thought it was going to take another three, four years before I got to Formula One. And my very first Formula One deal is with Brabham. So yeah, it was, it was very, very special. And I think probably it, got, it went to your head a little bit. And then, you know, because you can get carried away with, with what's going on and not be focused. So I think I had to learn how to deal with that at the early stages. And then how tough was it to fail to qualify for some races and to be constantly at the back? Because as you say, you'd had this stellar season yeah. the, the year before. Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't easy because it was like, well, hang on a minute, what the hell's going on here? Um, and also the time, the, the politics within the team, half the people wanted me, half the team didn't. I wasn't experienced enough for those people. And I totally get that. I wasn't, you know, I was, I was a rookie in a sense. And, but they wanted, you know, they had Martin Brundle and Stefano Modena. Martin had left. They've, all of a sudden, you know, they've got a rookie in the team. And back then it, was, it wasn't done a lot like that, you know, like it is today. Um, and you don't, you didn't have simulators and get yourself up to speed and do all this testing kind of thing. But uh, there was no money, no testing, no development. Stefano would get the priority in terms of parts and then I'd have his parts after him. So I never got fair game in that sense. I just tried to do the best I could and, um, you know, not qualifying for races. I think the first one was Imola that I failed to qualify. Uh, brand new car. Two of the practice sessions, each time I went out of the pits, the car stopped. So I did not even do a lap virtually leading up to the third practice. Then I got some laps in, then it was qualifying. And of course, qualifying back then, you had 30 cars going for 26 spots. So it was really tough at the back to actually qualify. A lot of good drivers were back there with me. And at Imola, I missed out by three or four tenths or something to, to be, on, be in my first Grand Prix. And then, of course, went to Monaco after that, and that was that was when I qualified for, for my first race. But I think I didn't qualify for seven or eight races that year, so it was tough. Yeah. And then, end of the season, it all comes to an end. I mean, were there options elsewhere for? Well, was there an option with Brabham in '91 or elsewhere, or did you think at the end of 1990 help Formula One careers over almost before it started? Yeah, a little bit. By the time I got to the end of the year, they were you know quite quite a lot in debt. They needed a change. Um, Yamaha engines came on board. I did the first test with the Yamaha engine, um, you know, in, in the BT58, actually. Um, and I was hope, obviously hoping to continue because I felt like, okay, I've, year one I've learnt, kind of felt better prepared for year two, but I was replaced uh, by Mark Blundell and that was it. I was out there looking for another drive. And you went sports car racing? No, I went back to F3000. Yeah, so um, I didn't have any money, so I had to find what I could. And 
it was a case of uh, Team Rooney had a spare seat next to Fernando Plata. And Fernando was one of my teammates. In, well, when I was in Class A, he was in Class B with Bowman, so we knew each other. And he obviously brought some money to the team, but they needed someone with experience to, to help him and, and do well. And we had a Rolt that year, which wasn't that competitive. So I did four races with them. And then I did the Intercontinental Challenge with the XJR 15s. So uh, Silverstone, Spa, Monaco rounds. I think Monaco was first. So I went to Monaco to do that race and I finished second behind Derek Warwick. And after the race, uh, TWR said, look, you know, how would you like to come and drive the XJR 14, which is the one Ross Braun designed, was the last car That's that fantastic. So the support race series for Formula One got you the ride in the Jaguar sports car team, yeah. effectively. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So Mar I replaced Martin Brundle <laughs> um, <laughs> um, again, uh, but he was doing his F1 commitments and they needed to, you know, have a different driver. And after that race, they said, look, would you like to come and test? And this was the odd one because I rang up and I said, okay, up, I'm here, I'm ready to test. And they said, well, there's no point you testing if you're not going to drive for us. So I said, are you offering me a job? And they said, yeah, we'd like you to do the season. So I was like, sure, yeah. <laughs> and, I, and, you know, I, and I do things in a particular way. I say, okay, that's really great, but I'm going to have to go and tell my team, tell them this is the opportunity, get the okay and all that sort of stuff, and then go back and say yes. You know, so I did that, and they said, look, we haven't got any more money, so you better get going. This is a fantastic opportunity for you, so, you know, crack on. And uh, sign with Jaguar to do sports cars, which was an amazing experience. And how much better prepared were you for Formula One second time or around as a result of that i'll tell you yeah i mean sports cars you learn so much um you know the very first sports car race in the xjr 14 which was, was such an incredible car to drive and i i started in one car and finished in the other so tom would only pay for three drivers instead of four so uh i ended up i think who did i say i started in Derek warwick's car and finished in teo farby's car but i finished first and second <laughs> <laughs> was that car quicker than the brabham yeah, I mean, it would have finished, it, it would have qualified in the top 10 of a Formula One race. Yeah, yeah so it, it was, was, it was just another level up. Yeah. Um, and of course, this was the era of Schumacher and Mercedes. That's right. And, isn't it? All the young yeah, guys were, racing were coming against each other. Through, yeah, so. We were racing against each other again in sports cars. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they, they were competitive towards the end of that year. We were very competitive at the beginning in terms of Jaguar. Uh, Peugeot came online with a new car because they were just getting hammered by the Jag. And then that was another step up. There was a great battle between Goodyear and Michelin. And um, as, a, as a driver driving two, with two, two different vehicles, with different teammates, with different styles, different setups, again, you kinda, you're in an environment where you learn so much in terms of how to adapt to each car that you drive. And was Formula One still the objective for you? Yeah, the dream was still, it there. was unfinished business in a way. Yeah. Um, so SimTech in 1994, yeah. tell us how that came about. Well, it was a connection through uh, a sort of, well, through a number of people, but particularly dad um, and a guy called Don McPherson and obviously Nick Worth. And there, we, the, he obviously was doing this project, wanted to get to Formula One and he needed an experienced driver. And obviously I had a name as well. Um, and that's kind of where the opportunity came. Now, in 93, I had quite a barren year. So I got married. We had time to get married. And I just wasn't sure what the future was going to be. And then all of a sudden this Formula One opportunity came and it was like, God, now's my chance to get back into Formula One. Not with an established team, but at least it got my, my foot back in the door. How stressful did you find being an up and coming driver at that time, not knowing from one year to the next? Were you good at dealing with that? I think you learn how to deal with it um, because each year was, un you get to the end of the season, you go through Christmas not knowing what you're going to do the next year. So I never had the funds to put down on, on the table. Um, I wish I had because Eddie Jordan offered me the drive in 91 with uh, the 7-Up car that Schumacher ended up starring in. Um, Great little car. Yeah, it was. I had, if I had half a million bucks, I could have had that drive. Alongside what, Jachesaris? Uh, Jachesaris, yeah. yeah. Wow. So... Um, I never had that opportunity, so I had yeah. to I had to do what I had to do. I had to find what was out there, and you know, obviously with with Nick, with SimTech, it was another 
opportunity to get into Formula One. Knew it was going to be difficult, as it always is with a new team, and uh, with not a lot of money. What was the car like? Yeah, the pretty car, car. Yeah, it was a pretty car. Um, if you look at the cars back then, we we were the only one that run ran the suspension where the bottom wishbone was higher, which caused some issues with the suspension. But our biggest issue was, you know, we had no money to develop. So it was what it was. It was heavy. Uh, we had the least amount of power. We probably had the least amount of downforce. And, you know, as long as we, we didn't have the 1990 scenario where there was 30 cars going for 26 slots, all we had to do was try and really get on the grid as high as we could. And that was always the last row or the second last row or maybe the third last row. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a challenging year for, for many reasons. Of course, we couldn't mention 1994 without mentioning Imola. It was a weekend that began with a terrifying crash for Rubens Barrichello and ended with Ayrton Senna's fatal accident on the Sunday. And between those events, Roland Ratzenberger, David's teammate at Simtech, the man on the other side of the garage, tragically died after crashing during qualifying. I asked David how he reflects on that weekend today. Well, I, I remember it. Um, it's a long time ago now. At the time, you know, Formula One had not seen a weekend like that for a while. So obviously Ruben's accident was a bit of a shock. Um, and of course, you know, my teammate Roland goes on, on Saturday. So as a small team, never having lost a teammate, the team... I think only one person in that team had lost a driver before, and that was um, uh, Humphrey Corbett. He he uh, he lost Paul Warwick uh, when he died at uh, at Alton Park. So this was his second driver, which was pretty tough for him. And it was one of those scenarios you just didn't know what to do or how to handle it because you'd not experienced it before. So your brain is completely scrambled in in many ways. You know, when they told, I kind of knew he was gone because actually when. I was out there on the track, the red flag came out. I'd just gone past start finish line. And then as I come towards the accident, I just saw some body work on the, on the track and it was, there was purple bits and I thought, that's Roland. And then as I go around the hairpin and I kind of look up and, and you know, what I saw was enough for me to go, I don't, I don't think he's made it. Um, so went back to the pits and they, everyone's saying, well, what do you think, what's happening? And I said, I didn't want to say I think he's gone because I didn't know, but I said it's not not good. Um, and then the news came later that that he obviously had passed away. So, um, like I said, that was a that was a big shock for, for for Formula One and also for a very small team like Simtech. How the hell are we going to keep this thing going? How did you? What? How could you get back in the car the next day? You started the race. You- well, that that evening I sat down with Nick, Max, and Bernie. And they said, the decision to race is mine. Cheers, guys. <laughs> you know, um, and I just didn't know what to do. And Did you feel pressure to race in any no, way? No, I don't think I've, I, no, only pressure in a sense of we've got to keep this thing going. Roland would not want, in my opinion, Roland would not want you to sit there and go and walk away from the sport just because something happened to him. Um, and I decided that I would do the warm up to see how I felt. And that was accepted. And obviously we had a front wing failure. So the team had to convince me that there was a fix for it. And when I got to the, the next day, I don't think I slept much that night, got there that next on race day, went and did the warm up. And we actually did quite well in the warm up, which was unusual to be up that high. How, how did it feel to be in a Formula One car again, driving it on the limit? I don't think I found the limit. To be fair, I think um, the events of the day before takes something out of you. You think you're doing the best. You think you're on the limit. But when I look back, I think probably not. Um, there was a much more of a safety aspect to my thinking when I was driving. And I've never been a driver that really thought much about the safety for whatever reason. Didn't really think much about it. That's what it is. Let's go for it. But during that time... This, yeah, the, the, what happened at the events before and, and being in that race car and you know, not knowing if something's going to happen. You know, my wife was there. She was pregnant. And, you know, all those things that you would never think about, you started to think about. So I felt okay. So I decided to do the race. Um, 
and I did the race and I had a failure myself, luckily in a safe spot. So I felt very lucky to get out of there alive, to be fair. And then what was your reaction when you heard that Senna died from his accident? Yeah, when I went past the accident, because we had a couple of starts, restarts, and, and, you know, we got going. And as I came around that corner, um, I could see dust and a car kind of stopping. And I thought it was a Tyrrell. I didn't even think it was Senna. I didn't know that till, till we all stopped on the grid, got out, and then people were starting to say, you know, it was, it was Senna. But I had no idea, you know, what the accident was like or what was going on. You know, news filtered on a bit later. But obviously we started the race and off we went again. But um, actually I think it was confirmed when I actually got home. So I didn't know till I got home that Ayrton had gone. And that, again, was another shock. And because you're just numb. You're totally numb about the whole weekend. Two drivers have gone. One's your teammate. So many emotions going on. And I remember, I remember crying. I remember sitting there and just crying. Because well, the emotions on, just... On the grid or...? or no, no, at no, home. At home, right. Yeah, yeah. I just... No, it, it, I kind of had that attitude of when, we, when I decided to race, I raced not for me, I raced for the team. We have to keep this thing going. So you kind of mentally go into a different place all the way through the weekend. You get home, you turn on the TV. It was teletext, actually. Put teletext on, see what's going on. Senna's died. And I just started crying. So, you know, the, all the emotions of that weekend just caught up with me and the thing that triggered it was watching the news to where, where Ant had gone. And, of course, Roland's um, funeral, the follow I mean, so Senna's funeral got so much publicity. Mm. Ratzenberger's less, less so. so. Yeah. Can you just describe the scene for us? What was? Um, obviously, when someone like Ayrton Senna goes, it's it's big news, um, and it overshadowed what happened the day before. There's no doubt about it. Um, but it, that's just how life is. At the funeral, you know, obviously it was very sad. You know, Roland's family were there. Um, you know, there's still Formula One people there. Obviously, rep, you know, come to pay their respects. Um, I flew over there with Max in the jet. We landed. Max Mosley. Yeah, yeah Max Mosley and, and Nick Worth. Um, and, you know, for Nick as well, he's lost a driver. And it was a very sad moment. There's no doubt about it. It was difficult to pick ourselves up, get back in the car and be on the limit again. I think it took three or four races before I felt comfortable at doing that again. And what kind of a guy was Roland? How well did you know him? Because it was, of course, only race three of the season. Yeah, I mean, obviously I knew of Roland and, and met him in Japan and uh, it wasn't until he was my teammate I still had to get to know him. So I was down in Monaco. He was in Monaco. We trained together, start developing that relationship that you would, you would have with, with two teammates. Um, and, you know, we started to, you know, really gel. And he was, he was a very driven individual. He was older than I was. So he came into Formula One. I don't know, I can't remember what age he was. He must have been 30, early 30s or something. And this was his big chance because he'd been trying to get to Formula 1, couldn't get there, did lots of sports car stuff, raced in Japan, and then got this, actually found some money and to, to, to go racing. So, um, you know, it was great to have him on board. And, and, you know, he was, you could tell he was a quick driver. Even now, all these years later, do you get emotional just thinking about that weekend now? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think, you know, it's time's passed and... My view is that things happen for a reason. Um, everybody who were involved in that had a particular experience that was relevant to them at the time where you grow as an individual. So for me, um, I grew as an individual having had that experience as well as everybody else for their own reasons. So um, I just see it part of life. And was your dad able to offer some support? Because of course like he'd been through what, what you'd gone through then many times. Uh, yeah, I mean... Or did he just leave you to sort... No, he was... He, he, yeah, mum and dad were, were quite supportive, although I'd say, you know, when I think back, mum, who'd gone through so many deaths at that time, virtually said, look, son, it's racing, you've just got to crack on, you know, because that was, that was the kind mom of... Mum more than dad. Yeah, mum more than dad, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, um, so it was, yeah, it was kind of... It was a bit like that. It was like, well, you know, what are you going to do? Walk away or are you going to keep going? Mm. And I was, you know, very driven to get back in the car and, and keep that show going. You know, it wasn't easy for the team because we had very little money and we, we didn't know if we were going to make the next race or the next race or the next race. So we got through the season 
And, you know, I grew a lot as a person throughout that whole season. It was different experiences than what I've had before. And it made me a better person, a better driver moving forward. You say it took you a couple of races, you think, to find the limit again. But your best result of the season came just two races later in Spain. Tenth. Did it? I can't remember yeah, that. Tenth, I just tenth was I? Yeah, I could have yeah. got a point, but I didn't. I was still top six <laughs> yeah, then. Um, yeah, I think I was still trying to find my, you know, find my rhythm and and not think too much about what had happened. And of course, at Barcelona, we had uh, Montemini yes. drive the car and had a big accident. He did. Coming last out the final corner. turn. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Last corner. Um, and, and, you know, he, he was going around and round and round. We were watching his times. His time started to drop quite a lot. Uh, and his neck was falling off because he wasn't used to the G-forces. And we, you know, the team said, look, you know, come in. No, no, I'm going to do one more lap. You know, boom, straight in the wall because he just, his head went and he lost sight of where he was going and uh, ripped the front of the car off and see this thing spinning around like this. And, of course, Nick, I remember Nick's knees just went to jelly and he literally collapsed because he thought, no, 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 not again, not again, as we all were. Uh, luckily, you know, he was he was okay. But, um, you know, it was again, it was like, oh, my God, then I just don't want to go through that experience again. Because yeah. you had Venlinger after, course, before that Monaco, as well, yeah. you know, at Monaco. So there was so much going on that it was really difficult to blank out of your, your head. So end of that season... It's been a really tough season for so many reasons. How would you say the Formula One world was looking at David Brabham at that time, at the end of that season? They weren't. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't make enough impact. Time to move on. So, Was know, it clear to you at the end of 94 that you... Yeah, I mean, you know, I did two years of it. Teams that were struggling. Although I felt, you know, first, second time round, I felt a lot stronger driver, you know, with the sports car experience with Jagger and then Toyota. And then back into Formula One, I felt like I could carry myself. I could do what I had to do. Um, I had lots of teammates. I think I got out-qualified once. And the team really relied on me. So there were really good elements of that year, but I knew it was pretty much done by then. I, it was time for me to move on. Um, and I ended up through Nick's connections through BMW uh, with Paul Rocher. Um, ended up getting a BMW works drive in touring cars. What was your relationship like with the other F1 drivers of the time? Because, of course, Damon is there. Did you, did you hang out with Damon a bit? Did you? No. Um, when I think about it, I didn't really hang out with many of them. When I went home, I didn't really surround myself with racing people. I surrounded myself with friends. And it may have been a mistake back then because, you know, when I went home, I was home. We had a child, you know, little baby Sam, and, you know, I enjoyed having being a father and, and all of that sort of thing again. Um, and it was just the way I, I kind of lived my my life then. So it wasn't like we, we mixed a lot with lots of different people in racing at that point. Have you ever discussed Imola with Damon? Yeah, we, um, we went back and did The Last Teammate mm. on Sky, which was a fantastic program that highlighted what happened that weekend, the emotions that everyone went through. And Damon, you know, he lost one of the greats next to him and um you know the williams team was a front-running world championship winning team that could win that championship can't imagine the kind of burden that kind of fell on his shoulders um i think you can imagine exactly because that happened to you but okay different circumstances yeah, smaller yeah, team but yeah but we weren't racing for world championship wins we, we had a different thing we were racing for survival quite different situation pressure the same in a way you know it's pressure's pressure but a different type of pressure and you know if you look at his season and like i said to you like before i said you know, i felt like i could deal with damon because i kind of beat him in f3 when he jumped into a former 3000 car he came alive you know i mean it was former three didn't suit him got him into the bigger stuff that that really yeah that was he felt much more at home he was very driven to improve and get better and um you know that whole season of 94 he nearly won the championship with a very difficult car to drive at the beginning how do you reflect on your f1 career pleased to have done it yeah absolutely i mean you know when i started i never thought formula one was probably going to be an option you know i mean when i did go-karts i didn't think about where i was heading down the future i was just racing and, and it just my journey and, and that's how I sort of viewed my world back then 
didn't have those long-term goals. I just focused on doing what I had to do and do it well and something would happen and then something would happen and then something would happen and all of a sudden I'm in Formula One. <laughs> <laughs> seven, uh, seven years after I was thinking, oh, should I go go-kart racing? Yeah. You know what I mean? So, Do it, they race go-karts? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Do they race go-karts? Yeah. Do people race go-karts? Seriously? You know. It's an extraordinary story. Yeah, it's not what people imagine, that's yeah. for sure. And then, of course, you go on and have all this success in, in sports cars and winning Le Mans outright and mm -hmm. in various class victories as well, isn't it? But it seems to me you've got a, a, you're at a different challenge now. Have you hung up your helmet, so to speak? Uh, I've never officially retired. No, I got to having raced in America for like 12 years, American Le Mans series, won championships out there. Really fantastic period of racing for me. 2008 was like a purple patch. No one could touch me. Went into 2009. Uh, won Le Mans, won the championship. Was probably didn't drive as well as I did in 08. I was going through a court case with getting the Brabham name back in well, Germany. That's something I wanted to talk to you about next. Yeah. Yeah. So that 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 took quite lots, taxing. Yeah. Yeah. The very very um, tough at that point to sort of deal with all that sort of stuff and not not carry it into the car. So 2009 was one of my successful years. You know, won Le Mans. Um, it was the third year on the top spot of, of Le Mans with GT1 two years before with Aston Martin and then obviously with 09 with Peugeot, winning the American Le Mans championship and, you know, life was, life was good. Um, but I could also feel the flame starting to go out as well because I was starting to think about the future. I was in this court case with the Brabham name. I wanted to do something with it. I didn't know what, but I'd been working on that for seven years and then in the seventh year, I, 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 I kind of put racing to one side. Why the hunger to get the Brabham name back? Well, I, mean, I remember sort of who owned it. Can you just give us a bit of background as well? Where, you well, know, I, we thought, well, I thought we owned it. <laughs> when I, well, because of course, so, Bernie Ecclestone buys it in the, in the early 70s. That's correct, yep. And, and has a lot of success with it. Uh, did you ever talk to your dad about the success Bernie had and the, the world championships in 81 and 83? Did, did your dad get any pleasure from that? Someone else. Oh, yeah, no, yeah, definitely. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, he started Brabham with Ron Turanak back in 1961, 62. Was the biggest racing car manufacturer in the world in the 60s. Uh, won the Formula One World Championship in his own car. No one's ever done that. Retired at 44, nearly winning the championship again. Um, and then to see how successful the, the, the team went on in Bernie's hands, you know, he was, he was immensely proud of that continuing, that legacy continuing. Um, yeah, we, we, we had many, many chats about that and you could tell he had a pride about it, uh, for sure. Was he supportive of you trying to get the Brabham name back? Yeah. I mean, the way it kind of started was, you know, I was 40, still in my prime as a sports car driver, thinking, what the hell am I going to do when I'm 50? Because I didn't want to end up doing nothing. I wanted to work towards something. So when I did stop, I had something and I didn't know what it was at the time. But then I thought, well, hang on a minute. We've got this iconic racing name, Brabham. It's one of the, the big names of the sport. We don't do anything with it. We should be able to do something. I didn't know what. And then, of course, looking into it, discovered that somebody in Germany, a guy called Michael Trick, had registered Brabham and Brabham Racing. So our, my applications that I, for trademarks went in and got knocked back. And I was like, well, hang on, who the hell's this? It was a massive shock to me and dad that someone had gone in there and registered our name and then discovered that they were kind of pimping up BMW M5s, Brabham BT92, the, you know, Brabham Racing, the legend returns. So if I was going to ever do something with the name, I better get it back. So I ended up taking them to court. Dad was going to come in with me and then just before we were about to go, he pulled out. He was in a court case. I didn't really know much about it at the time, but he was in a court case in Australia, which was a bit nasty. So he didn't want another one on his hands. Um, but at the time, it was a bit of a shock. Well, hang on, I thought we were going in this together. I'm going into the lion's den here, um, not really knowing what to do or how to do it. Uh, and it ended up being a, basically a seven-year process to get the name back. So it was pretty, yeah, pretty challenging. But you've got it. Yep. And... Fans of, of, of you and the Brabham name will be aware of the Brabham BT62, which is mm -hmm. this, just quickly just describe what this beast of a car is. It's Well, I mean, you know, when I, 
when I got the name, I was like, what am I going to do? But I couldn't do it on my own. I needed partners, financial partners and expertise. And it took a while, but I eventually ended up in Adelaide, of all places, meeting a, a group down there called Fusion Capital, who had multiple businesses. Uh, and one of them was manufacturing, uh, supplying components to Ford, Holden, Toyota. And of course, when they were pulling out down in Australia, the, the group needed to diversify and do something else and, and utilize that expertise. So they, they started um, to develop and build buses as a way of manufacturing, but they wanted a halo product and a mutual contact got us together because I wanted to do something with a name. They wanted to do something with a high-end vehicle that suited what I wanted to do. Racing was part of that as well as, you know, eventually building road cars and so forth. So it looked like everything that I'd been looking for just came together while I was in Adelaide. We produced the Brabham BT62, which is the next chapter of the, the iconic Brabham story. And, you know, we, we built a fantastic car. It was a, a track car originally that's evolved into a road car compliant road version. How, how now, quick is it? It's like and insanely now quick, competition isn't it? spec. So, you know, it's, it's under a ton. It's 972 kilograms, 700 horsepower, 1200 kilos of downforce. We smashed the record at Bathurst. Um, every, everyone who jumps in is, is like blown away by the performance, the confidence yeah. inspiring feeling that you get. And it's, it's the showpiece of what we can do. And how proud would your old man be, do you think? You know, it's such a shame he, he wasn't around to kind of see this come together because I think he would be extremely proud. Yeah, absolutely. To see the name back out there on a super cool vehicle. You know, we're only building 70, so it's limited edition. Cars are in production. Customers will get in their cars soon. It's, it's an amazing journey to think from, you know, 14 years ago now I didn't didn't know what that future was going to be but I knew something could be done to go through the court case to get to the other end I had no money everything was gone you know I had to start all over again and it was it was a it was a challenge but so to sit here now and and look at what we what we launched the reaction that we've had um now you know we'll see with the competition spec we won at, at Brands Hatch that was amazing. Uh, Paul Bailey's going to be racing it this year in Brick Car. We've got another one coming online later for the competition spec to be racing. So to see all that come together is pretty cool. And is this the catalyst for more? I mean, could we ever see the Brabham name back in Formula One or, or at least top level motorsport? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's our goal. We want to we want to be racing in the World Endurance Championship and Le Mans with our cars. We've said, you know, sort of 21, 22 is, is where we want to get to with that. Lots of regulation changes around the top category have been happening. We've kind of been waiting for those to settle to understand what direction we go because it could be, you know, we're working on a road car in the background. So is it is it based off that? Is it is it something else in the hypercar category, which would probably be a new car? You know, there's lots of things going on at the moment, but that's our goal and we will get there. F1? Uh, it's a, it's a, it's, that's <laughs> an interesting one because, um, you know, I've been approached many, many times by people who want to buy a team and they need a name. So, you know, I have the ability to, um, outside of this project with Brabham Automotive, I can use the name in other areas. So in Formula One, it could come back to four if, if it was the right situation. And, you know, when someone comes to you and said, you know, we, this is our plan, we want to do Formula One, we're going to buy this team, we really want to do a deal with you, uh, it all sounds exciting. I reckon I probably had, seven, eight of those conversations over the last 10 years. As many as that. Mm. Gosh. And of course, after a while, you kind of (laughs) learn that these things don't normally come off. So I kind of learned in the end to say, well, I tell you what, show us the proof of funds and then we'll talk. That certainly made the the conversations a lot shorter so we could just crack on and get on with what I was doing. So, But if someone turned up with the money, you would be open to the idea of Brabham coming back to Formula 1? Yeah, if it was the right situation. With the brand, I have the ability to do that because I own it. And so it's a case of, well, let's have a look. Let's, does it make sense? I'm a, I'm a kind of logic, common sense person. So I've run my whole life through that, through racing and everything, or with, with this deal with my, my uh, partners, Fusion Capital in, in Australia. It all had to make sense. If it doesn't make sense, forget it. So if it comes to me and, and someone says, look, these are our plans, this is what we'd like to do, we'd like to see Brabham back in Formula One with, well, with our project we can have a discussion. 
but you've got to have the funds. Watch that space. Well, David, thank you very much for your time. What a great chat. Lovely to speak. Thanks, Tom. How much would you like to see the Brabham name back in Formula One? What a story that would be. And what a tale from David too. I loved his recollections of his father, particularly the impact of their row prior to that F2 race at Adelaide in 1987. I wonder if any other drivers would consider an argument with a relative to get them all fired up. And the way he kept going after Ratzenberger's accident at Imola is something of which he can be very proud. Just listening to him describe the situation gave me goosebumps. Thanks for your time, Brabs. It was great to catch up and good luck with what comes next. Well, that's it for this episode, but we'll be back next week with another fascinating conversation from the world of Formula One. In the meantime, if you want to drop me a message about the show, I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter and you can use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. We really love your comments and we read them all. One of which came from Dave Stott, who got in touch via Twitter to comment on last week's show with Mark Blundell. Another excellent episode, he says. A very open discussion with Mark, which has made me respect him as a driver more than I did in the past. So thank you. Thank you, Dave, for getting in touch. It's so thrilling to hear when one of these conversations has changed your opinion on a driver. There are so many fascinating characters in motorsport outside of the superstar names, and we're proud to shine a light on them. Well, that's it for now, and thanks for listening. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, stay safe, keep washing those hands, and keep it flat out. Listener.